want you to help me. The gospel is never stationary. It is always moving onward. So help me. The gospel is never stationary. It is always moving onward. The gospel is never stationary. Always moving onward. All right. Hang on to that. It's been a privilege of Lisa and mine to visit Israel two times. First trip was with two other couples, and we rented a car, and we drove all over Israel. It was tremendous. The second trip, I was able to take about 25 people. One of the couples on that second trip has become very dear friends of ours, and they have traveled with us. Uh, We've traveled with them. And he has become an acclaimed landscape photographer. Um, In fact, he's become a master photographer. Uh, This is a second career after his computer career has flourished. And God has blessed it and is using his work. And Ed said to our group, I'm going to get up and take a picture of the old city of Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. Who would like to go with me? (laughs) Uh, Several of us said, of course we will go. And we want to see the master photographer in action with this iconic view of the city of Jerusalem. And we were there at the first in the morning in what's called the blue hour. Have you already seen that one? Has that already been there? Yeah. And so Ed kind of has taught us over the years. I've tried to learn. I'm not anything, but I wanted to learn a little bit. But he's talking about the blue hour. He says, you'll see in the early mornings that the sky turns up. So photographers love this. And, and so he's positioned his camera, and you see there's the, to the left is the Al-Ask Mosque. It's one of the largest Muslim mosques in the world, and it's underground. And, and to the right is the Dome of the Rock, and that iconic place where they believe, the Muslims believe that Muhammad uh, went to heaven from the rock. Um, and, and by the way, he came back and died. And so uh, that's their, their view. But to us, of course, as Christians, that marks the place where Solomon's temple was and and then Zerubbabel's temple and the rebuilding of that would be Herod the Great's temple. That's right there. So you're standing on the Mount of Olives looking into this scene. Then the sun comes up over the ridge and shines upon this view. And then you see the daytime picture that Ed took just, just took our breath away. So let me describe the, the scene. You're standing as you look at this picture on the Mount of Olives. Now, the Dead Sea is the lowest place on earth, about 25 or 30 miles to the east, and it's at a depth of 1,400 feet below sea level. So you always go up to Jerusalem. That's why the, through the Scriptures, let us go up to Jerusalem to worship. You always go up, because it's about 2,500 feet above sea level. Mount of Olives is about 2,700 feet above sea level. And so you're looking down, you have this incredible view of the city of Jerusalem. Jesus, in Acts chapter 1, went back to heaven from this place, the Mount of Olives. I believe that, I I don't know this for sure, but surely it was in the morning. And perhaps it was a view just like this. The day we know exactly, 40 days after the resurrection. And so here's the Lord Jesus He's appeared to his followers about 10 or 11 times since the resurrection. This is the last time that his followers would see him. In the crowd this day are not only the 11 disciples, but his mother is there. And now his brothers are there. They have all become followers of their brother. Is Now they recognize as the Messiah. And at once they had rejected him. Now they love him and follow him. And so the crowd around him, we believe about 120 people because just 10 days later, the Holy Spirit will come in that upper room and fall upon the 120. So let's say 10 days before the coming of the Spirit, 
that 120 have gathered around the Lord. And in my mind's eye, I see Jesus with his back to the city. And in front of him, a little bit on a rise above him, are the 120. These are the last words before he will be caught up in front of their eyes into the glorious cloud of God's holiness. And by the way, there he, there he reigns today in that glorified body. The first fruits from the dead. In other words, we are all the rest of the fruits waiting for our own glorified bodies. And the Lord Jesus is there now in heaven having been caught up into the cloud in front of their eyes. Before he leaves, he speaks. Can you imagine the impact of his final words before he goes back to heaven? Wow. What did he say? He looks at his followers and he says, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you shall become my witnesses. And you will start in Jerusalem all the surrounding area of Judea. Now, his followers have to realize he told us to start in Jerusalem. These men were from Galilee. Perhaps they had been thinking, as soon as Jesus leaves, we're going back home to Galilee and we will start preaching the gospel in Galilee. And Jesus changed their whole plan. No, you will go back to Jerusalem and that's where you will start. So get this. For us to accomplish the Acts 1-8 commission, we will have to overcome our what? Our fear. They killed you in Jerusalem. They want to kill us in Jerusalem. Wouldn't it be a better plan if we go to Galilee and kind of lay low for a while and then start preaching? Jesus says, no, you overcome your fears and you'll start right here. And then he says, I want you to go to Samaria. And perhaps he's taking his left hand and he's pointing to the north. He's, now I want you to, you will go to Samaria and you'll begin preaching there. Stop. So his followers now have to deal with their what? Their prejudice. Because the Jews had a deep-seated prejudice towards the Samaritans. And it had been happening since Zerubbabel had rebuilt the temple after 70 years in captivity. Zerubbabel leads the, the pure Jews out of captivity from Babylon after the Persian king Cyrus let them go. And now this remnant of true Jews make their way back to Jerusalem. They begin to rebuild the temple and Nehemiah helps them rebuild the wall. And down comes the uh, mixed Jews that had lingered behind. They had intermarried with the pagan nations. And they came to Zerubbabel and said, Now, we want to help you build our temple. What do you mean, our temple? You're not a part of this. And you have mixed with the other nations. We are the pure Jews. You're not welcome. And so what did the Samaritans do? They chose their own mountain. We will build our own temple on Mount Gerizim. You remember this story in John chapter 4 when Jesus talked with the woman at the well and all of this was happening and she was trying to figure all this out so the followers of jesus had to deal with their prejudice that day you know jews don't go to samaria doesn't the lord know that <laughs> yes that may be true that jews don't go to samaria but jesus is saying my followers will go to samaria and they will have to get over their prejudice. Let's say this. Let, let's, in our culture today, in 2016, with all of the racial issues that have affected our nation over the last year, let's say this, church. Let racism die in Jesus' church. Let us proclaim to the world the love of Jesus. Because you're going, if we're going to be the Acts 1-8 church that becomes the Antioch church, we'll have to get over our prejudice. Then the Lord said to them, 
then you will go to the remotest parts of the earth. Wow, the remotest parts of the earth. Can you imagine what they must have thought? Look at us. We're just 120, a little handful of people. So if the church is going to obey the Lord Jesus, we'll go over our fears, and we're going to take the gospel to where we live. Get over our prejudice and take the gospel to peoples of other race and, and backgrounds. And then we have to get over our complacency to take the gospel to the remotest parts of the earth. I, I have a feeling Jesus may have turned and, and maybe raised his arm, maybe shielded his eyes and says, and I want you to take the gospel to the remotest parts of the earth. Say, Lord, how can we do such a thing? We are so little in number, we have so little resources, and I think what it is saying, the Lord Jesus is saying, for the church to accomplish his commission, we have to get over our complacency because we will tend to become very comfortable. But someone's going to have to get over their complacency to say, we will go, and others are going to have to get over their complacency to say, we will sacrifice so that you may go. And Thus begins the journey of the church's life. Here's some of the things that I see. By the way, the gospel is never what? Stationary, always moving onward. All right, stay with me now. The gospel is never what? Stationary, always moving onward. Here we go. Here is the, here's a summary of what's happening in the first 15 years of the church's life. By the way, we know it's 15 years by this. We believe Jesus died approximately 30 A.D. Some say a few years before, a few years after. But let's, let's at least say for our study, 30 A.D., approximately Jesus died and was resurrected. The church began. By the time we get to chapter 12 in the book of Acts, um, you'll see that a king dies. His name is Herod Agrippa. And he died because the, uh, some people praised him and, and said it's the appearance of a man but the voice of a god. And, and he accepted the praise of his subjects. And he took the glory that should have been reflected back to God. And he died on the spot and that terrible story of him being eaten by worms, and all of that was in chapter 12. Well, Josephus, the historian, marked Herod Agrippa's death at 44 B.C., or I'm sorry, A.D. So it's approximately 14, 15 years. So we're talking about a time period now of incredible, explosive activity by the Holy Spirit. So let's, let's look at it. First of all, see the church is growing. Ten days after Jesus' ascension, the Holy Spirit comes into that upper room and, and tongues of fire descend upon them and out into the streets they go, filled with the Spirit. Not Listen, being filled with the Spirit, they didn't lose control of their faculties. Being filled with the Spirit, they became bold witnesses for the gospel. They were under control. They could speak clearly. And God gave miraculous abilities to speak languages they had never studied. The accurate use of the New Testament gift of tongues was in place at that time. And they went out into the streets and spoke the gospel to people who had come to Jerusalem because of the Feast of Pentecost. People from all over the world were there. And, and Luke, the historian in the book of Acts, lists the names of the countries. And so they're out into the streets and they're meeting somebody and they're sharing in a tongue they'd never studied and sharing the good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and His ascension, and His soon return. And on that day, Luke records that some 3,000 people were saved and baptized. Can you imagine any place of water they could find in Jerusalem? And there were baptisms taking place. Pool of Bethesda, Pool of Siloam, anywhere they could find water. They're baptizing in Jesus' name all over the city that day. Would what an amazing event, beginning of the church's life. You get to chapter 4, Peter and John are arrested. They're first, the first arrest of the disciples, and they are hauled before the Sanhedrin, the same ones who ordered the execution of Jesus just a few days earlier. They bring John and Peter before the, the Sanhedrin and question them. And it says at that time of the arrest that there were about 5,000 men now who had become followers of Christ. And we could assume that women and children 
uh, teenagers have become followers of Christ. Then when you get to chapter 7, by the time of the death of the first martyr, Stephen, some scholars estimate that the church in Jerusalem and Judea had grown to 20,000 in number. So the first thing we see in the church's history, the church is growing. And it is unmistakable. It is the hand of God. People are being added to the church daily. An amazing thing happening. But God didn't intend the church to grow to 20,000 strong in Jerusalem and stay in Jerusalem. Why? Because the gospel is never stationary. It's always moving onward. And so we see the next stage of the church's history. The church is advancing. And because of the persecution that falls upon the church after Stephen's death, ratcheted up by one none other than the Pharisee Saul, who the Bible says was breathing out threats against the church. I mean, he was consumed with stamping out what he considered to be a blasphemous movement against the Jewish faith. And Saul the Pharisee received permission and began to persecute. And what did the church do in Jerusalem? They scattered. But when they scattered, they did not go. They did not scatter to the next place to be silent. They scattered taking the gospel, and everywhere they went, they would preach the good news of Jesus. So what the devil meant for evil, God used it for harm. And it is always the case. Persecution always advances the gospel. It has always been that. Sidebar. Commercial time. If you have not seen the Insanity of God movie, let me recommend you to see it. The International Mission Board produced The Insanity of God. It was shown last Tuesday night in a one-day-only across-the-country showing. Did anybody see it? Anybody see Insanity of God? Wow. Okay. Tim, you got your work cut out for you. I recommend you seeing this. They, it was so well received that they're going to show it one more day and I think it's in a week or so they're going to show it so find a theater in Springfield or wherever and go see Insanity of God and it talks about the persecuted church from the vantage point of a missionary named Nick Ripken and he tells the story of what God has done in his ministry incredible story whenever there's persecution whether it's in China whether it's in Cuba whether it is in India all of these places we have been and we have seen the purified church. It's an amazing thing. The church advanced because of persecution. And what did they do? They went north to Phoenicia, that seafaring country. They sailed over to Cyprus, that large island. And it says that a group of unnamed men, we do not know who they are until we get to heaven, we'll find out who they are. A group of unnamed men targeted the city of Antioch in Syria. Why Antioch in Syria? Why was that so strategic? Because in the ancient world, there were three great cities. Rome, Alexandria in Egypt, and Antioch in Syria. That triangle made up the most important leading cities of the ancient world. So these men decided, if we're going to preach the gospel, let's go to Antioch in Syria, one of the great cities of the world. And so they did. And the Bible says they went preaching the Lord Jesus and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. Acts eleven nineteen. Again, what the enemy meant for evil, God meant it for good, and the church advanced. Then there's another thing the church learned. The church is growing, is advancing. This is very, very important. The church is giving. An important principle that any church must learn is that God meets the needs of his people through his people. So what happened in the life of the first church? A famine occurred in the region of Jerusalem and Judea at this exact time. It was a terrible famine. And the church in Jerusalem was already suffering persecution. Now they're suffering with lack of funds and able to feed their families. And this new church up in Antioch in Syria learns a valuable lesson. We will send relief by way of Saul and Barnabas, and we will send it to the mother church in Jerusalem. Can you imagine the blessing? 
of those first Christians in Jerusalem who have suffered so much persecution. And here comes their beloved Barnabas, who was there at the very beginning. And here comes Saul that they really not quite sure they're trusting yet. But here he is, and they bring this love offering from the church of Antioch and Syria to meet their needs. What did the church learn? God meets the needs of his people through his people. Incredible lesson. The great church will be the giving church. And who plants churches but other churches? And the gospel is never stationary. It's always moving onward. And some will go, some will sacrifice to sin, and it is God's plan. So the church learns a valuable, and this is not the first time they learned it. Barnabas had already taught them about giving. But now this new church up in Antioch learns this lesson, and the church is never the same. There's another thing they learned. The church is overcoming. I love this part of the story. It's one part of the story that has changed my life. But in chapter 12, Peter was arrested. King, this is before his death, shortly before his death, Herod Agrippa had already had James the Apostle executed. The first martyr was Stephen. The first apostle to be martyred was James, the brother of John. Now, that was so popular among the Jews of Jerusalem that Agrippa said, I will arrest their leader. And he laid his hands on Peter. And he waited for the feast of Passover when the crowd was its maximum. And he was going to bring out Peter and have him executed from the people. And he would gain favor as a politician. And he would, this would help him a whole lot to have Peter killed in front of the people. They hated the Christians. And the church wielded the most powerful weapon that they possessed. The church did not have any wealth to buy off corrupt politicians. They did not have any armies to storm the prison and rescue Peter. But they had the most powerful weapon. You know what it was? What? They prayed. And they gathered in, in the home of Mary, who happened to be the mother of John Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark. And they had a prayer service on behalf of their leader, Peter. And it says that Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. Now that word fervent prayer means they were straining in prayer, reaching in prayer, grasping for God in prayer. You can imagine, I, I have a sense that their prayer service would have unnerved some of us. Perhaps they were praying at the same time. Perhaps they were screaming and crying. Perhaps they were wailing before God and reaching to God and weeping and crying. And they were crying out, God, we've lost James. We've lost Stephen. How can we lose Peter, our leader? Oh, God, give him back to us. Peter was arrested, but the church was in prayer. And read the 12th chapter of Acts and see the most amazing prison break. I want to tell you why that was so significant to me coming to this passage. Lisa and I had just returned from Cuba. And several of you have been to Cuba. This was in 2013 for us. I have never been the same because I saw what prayer does on that island of Cuba. They mark the church's growth. They talk about the left side of the graph and the right side of the graph and the left side of the graph with what's happened in Cuba. Castro came into power late 50s, began to persecute the church. We met pastors who had been imprisoned by Castro. Until 1994, the left side of the graph, a graph, and the skyrocketing growth of what's happened on that island took place because uh, you the Soviet Union fell apart early 90s and they could no longer prop up the Cuban government. And so the Cuban government said, for us to survive, we've got to have some tourism. And so what they do, they said, let's open up, say to the churches, we're going we're gonna to not uh, have our thumb on you so much so that it appears to the outside we are now tolerant of religion and you can go, in a sense, you can go back to church. What do you think happened on that island? 
12 million people on the island of Cuba. And when we were there in 2013, they told us there were 50,000 people waiting to be baptized. We met one pastor, Pastor Juan. Now, when you think Cuban man, this is the quintessential Cuban man. He's about 80 years old, tough as leather, got a little hat and just a beautiful smile. He says, he said that they built the city on the island of Cuba along the coastline. They wanted it to be the quintessential um, Cuban city, no Christianity, communist city, and no religion. And, and he smiled and he says, but we took that city. And he told us the story. He told me and Lisa. He said, you can't buy property in Cuba, but you can swap property. So I got the idea, I'm going to swap property with somebody living in that city. And so he did. And now he has infiltrated this supposedly perfectly communist city, and now he has this light of the gospel. And he starts inviting people to his home. The church grows, and now there's several hundred that are meeting, and they come to us, you can't do this. You must scatter. Go into homes and have churches. Okay, we'll go into the homes and have churches. I just saw the clock there for the first time. I've been looking for that this whole time. There it is. Actually, it means very little that I saw that. So anyway, so Pastor Juan said, uh, he said, so we scattered into homes, and guess what? He said, I started another one in my home, and the ones we scattered did the same thing. He smiled and looked at us. He says, we took that city, and they know it. They lost. We won. It was amazing. And so what's happened then is when I was at this conference, I got up in the early in the morning to go just see the sunrise on this hill overlooking the campground. And I got up there. I saw a group of four or five men praying, weeping, worshiping, hands up. One would start singing. The other ones would sing. One would pray. The other would say, amen, brother. I think that's what they were saying. And then over here would be three or four others doing the same thing. And they're all there early, early, early in the morning as the sun comes up. I met Jose Enrique. Jose Enrique and I were born the same month, the same year. He is part of what they call the fellowship of the wounded. He has a terminal disease. Two or three of his friends have terminal disease. He's lived in the same village he lived in since he was a little boy. And he said he was the leader of the prayer movement of this conference. I was in awe of this man. Tell me your schedule, Pastor Jose Enrique. He said, I get up at 4 every morning. I pray until 8. We go out into the streets to tell the gospel. We come back at 8 o'clock. That's what I do. Fellowship of the wounded. I came back from Cuba thinking we have everything but power. They have nothing but power. And it's because of prayer. So let our churches learn to pray corporately together. the church is overcoming how do they overcome they overcame by prayer finally the church is sending church will send even to the remotest parts of the earth i want to read verses one through four of chapter 13 and then i want to tell our story very quickly so turn to acts chapter 13 verse one now there were at antioch chapter 13 verse one the word Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, and they list, and Luke lists five of their names. Barnabas, we know Barnabas, he's the son of encouragement. Simeon, who was called Niger. Some scholars believe, by the way, that this was the actual Simon of Cyrene who carried Jesus' cross on the way to Calvary. Lucius of Cyrene. This was a man from the region of North Africa, uh, Cyrene, which was the intellectual, philosophical center of the world. So you can imagine his influence, his learning. And then Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Now you've got to get your Herods straight. This is not Herod Agrippa, this is Herod Antipas. Well, you know who Herod Antipas is. He's the one that ordered the beheading of John the Baptist. Jesus called Herod Antipas that fox. Manian was reared with Herod Antipas. Perhaps his mother was a nurse and took care of the two boys, grew up together. And he's in the church at Antioch in Syria. 
And then, of course, who? Saul, whose name would be changed to Paul, who was perhaps the greatest Christian, surely the greatest missionary ever to live. Wow, what a lineup. So when I think of this church, I see the maturity of this church. What a lineup of pastors and teachers. Speaking of the growth of a church, can you imagine the depth of knowledge and understanding of doctrine and theology this church in Antioch and Syria had? So let an Antioch church be sound in doctrine, taught the Scriptures and taught well, be eager learners of the Word, bring your Bibles, have them open or on, every Sunday, and you are a student of the Word, and when you have opportunities to have small group studies, be a part of that and become learners of the Word. And there's a reason for that, not just learning for learning's sake, but learning so that we can then explain the good news to those who don't know Christ, who are seekers, and and you will have an influence in their world. So can you imagine the maturity of this church? Second thing I see is their passion. While they were ministering the Lord and fasting, these men believed what they, and they really believed what they believed. They did not have compartmentalized faith. And I believe that as the leader goes, so goes the church. So I'm, I'm inferring then that this church believed what they believed. And they, were, they, were not, they would not understand our cultural Christianity. You know, cultural Christianity is, are you a Christian? Sure, I'm American. So it's part of us. So we're... It's just our cultural Christianity, but this thing of a New Testament faith would be foreign to many around us, not to these men. They believed it, and it affected their lives, not just the next day or Monday after Sunday, but I'm talking about every area of their lives was permeated by their faith. And uh, they were passionate about it. This is not a game to them. This is not just a a halfway thing for them. I'll try Christianity and then do something else. No, this, this, this passion affected every part of their lives. I appreciate that spirit about these men, fasting and praying, giving their hearts, everything about their faith marked them. And then the third thing I see is their faith. I mean, how do you mean uh, their faith? Well, look who they sent out. Keep reading. The Holy Spirit said to them, set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, I claim them, I mark them, I will set them apart for my service, for the work to which I have called them, the Spirit said, to this church. Then they, when the church had fasted and prayed, laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So the Antioch church became the sending church, the first sending church. Jerusalem didn't send, Jerusalem was persecuted and they scattered. Antioch became the model to us, the sending church, intentionally sending out from their midst. And they went down to Seleucia, the port city, and from there sailed over to Cyprus and began, why would they go to Cyprus? Well, Barnabas was from Cyprus. He's going back home. And he is preaching the gospel on that island, and thus begins the first, what we call the first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. Can you Imagine the faith that it took to send out two of their best. Sending out Paul be better for Paul to stay here and teach us more, and we'll send out someone else. No, send out Saul and Barnabas. The encourager, send him out. And the faith that, I, when I think about it, is I, I'm not certain they ever expected to see these two men ever again. We're sending you out with the gospel. We're not sure if we'll ever see you again. We're not sure if we'll hear the reports of what's happening. I think that first sending church sent with such a faith to say what, what we are doing is not going to affect our local ministry. It's not going to benefit us. In fact, it's going to be a loss, a great loss. But we see the value of the gospel going to places we will never see. Now, think about this. While they did that, perhaps they never knew what was going to happen with that ministry. Today, as we open up our New Testaments, virtually every church that we come to, you could say the Antioch church had a hand in it. On that first missionary journey, they went to Antioch, Pisidia. The church at Antioch, Pisidia. The church at Iconium. The church 
at Lystra, the church at Derbe. Direct descendants of the church at Antioch in Syria. On the second missionary journey, Paul goes to Philippi, and then to Thessalonica, and then to Berea, and then to Athens, and then to Corinth. Every church planted, direct, draw a direct line back to Antioch and Syria. Third missionary journey, the great church in Ephesus became the sending church of all of Asia Minor. And there is the church of Colossae. And there are the seven churches of Asia Minor. There's Smyrna and Sardis and Thyatira and, and Phil- Philadelphia and Pergamum and Laodicea. Every church you read in the New Testament draw a direct line back to that sending church of Antioch in Syria. Wow. Church. The gospel is never stationary. It's always moving onward. Now, with all that, let me tell you our story quickly. On June 14, um, Lisa and I were approved as North American Mission Board missionaries to become church planters in Seattle, Washington. North American Mission Board has targeted 32 cities in our country. They tell us that some 80% of our population as Americans live in the cities. 80% live in cities. 32 of these cities have been marked out as strategic. One of them, of course, is Seattle. Our calling is to leave First Baptist Church Centerton, Arkansas, a church that we love, that we were not looking to leave, that we have enjoyed a fruitful ministry, to plant what we've been told is the first Southern Baptist Church in downtown Seattle, in the heart of the city. There are several young church planters that are ringing the city, but to our knowledge, not one in the downtown. He's sending us to plant a New Testament church in one of the fastest growing cities in America. Think, what do you think of when you think Seattle? Rain, yes, rain, yes, wet. Um, Boeing, uh, Amazon, Puget Sound, um, Starbucks. Uh, you, think, you think the beauty of that region. Um, but it's also, as your pastor said, one of the most godless, secular, dare we even say immoral cities in America. I've, I've kind of begun to think of it as the sister city of Corinth in the New Testament. Learning, uh, wealth, um, and unchecked immorality. Dr. Moeller has become a friend through Matt and Emily, president of Southern Seminary. We called him on this venture, and, and he said to me and Lisa, there's not another city in America like Seattle. He said, you would have to go to Brussels, Belgium, to find a comparable city. The downtown is made up of about 700,000 people. The uh, surrounding area, about 4.5 million. Dr. Moeller said this is going to take years. He said, Southern Baptists will have to redefine success for you. Maybe after a few years, you may have a beachhead in downtown Seattle. And that caused Lisa and me to look it in the face that what we're talking about is giving the rest of our lives to this work. Were we willing to do that? I've served as pastor at Centerton for 18 and a half years. I'm 25 miles from where I grew up in Springdale, Arkansas. Um, we've served churches in Texas and Oklahoma and other churches in Arkansas. And I love living in northwest Arkansas. I love the Ozarks. They're in my blood. Um, Walmart and Tyson and J.B. Hunt. It's a fast-growing area, and we've enjoyed our ministry. Seattle was unlooked for until October of last year. I have a young church planter friend that lives in the Seattle area. He's planting about 25 miles to the north in a 
suburb of the city, and he was in the northwest Arkansas area. We went for coffee. And he looked at me and he said, Stuart, our Seattle team has been praying about a couple to come and plant in the downtown. And then he described the couple. And I'm telling you, he described Lisa and me. He said, this couple needs to have their kids gone from the home. Our son had just gotten married three months earlier. And so both of our kids now married. And he said they, they should be veterans in ministry. They're 32 years of ministry now. Uh, strong marriage. We're, we have a happy marriage. Um, and are willing to come. And so he said, would you be willing to pray about coming? Actually, in that first, first meeting, he didn't say anything. I just raised my eyebrows. He raised his eyebrows. We didn't say anything else. And I went home. And I told Lisa, I said, I would not be surprised if these guys call us. And, and my wife said, I would be open to that. I said, I'd be open to that. Three weeks later, they called. And would you be willing to pray about coming? I said, we would. So we scheduled a date. Our first visit, first ever visit to Seattle was in December of last year. Prior to that, God spoke to my heart through his word. I believe God confirms His will through His Word, through wise counsel, through His church, through prayer, through circumstances. So in His Word, I was reading in my daily quiet time, December 7, and I, came, I happened to be reading in the book of Acts as, a, in, as my course of reading through the Bible, and came to chapter 10, verse 33, and it says that Peter arrived at Cornelius' house. Perhaps the first time this Jewish man had ever been in a Gentile's home. And by the way, Jesus taught him that, that uh, you're going to have to overcome your prejudice, right? And so he goes into a G Gentile's home, and in my mind's eye, I see his eyes, steps through the door, and his eyes adjust, and he's shocked to see the entire place is filled with people. Cornelius stands and greets him. He says, we sent for you immediately. You have been kind enough to come. We're all assembled here. So now tell us everything that God has commanded you. I'm telling you that was my Macedonian call. I've not been the same since Acts 10.33. We also received the blessing of our children. We've been approved by the North American Mission Board. Our children were more difficult on us than the North American Mission Board. They challenged us. They asked us hard questions. Why are you going, Dad? Are you trying to run from something? Uh, Dad, do you think that uh, you can do this? What makes you think you can go from Arkansas to Seattle? Dad, are you kidding me? And they were asking those hard questions. I didn't really have very good answers for all their questions, except I was able to say to them, yes, I think God's called us, and yes, we can love people, and we can tell the gospel. So our children gave their blessing. That was huge for us. We visited our first visit, uh, came back. We went back at the end of February um, and went to China to see our kids and came back. Saturday night before Easter and preached on Easter. Monday night, Lisa and I sat at our kitchen table. We asked five questions. What are we afraid of? Filled up several sheets on that one. Second question. Why do we think God is calling us to do this? Third question. Why do we think God is not calling us to do this? Fourth question, very important. Why do we think God is leading us to do this. What are we willing to give up? What are the costs? What are we willing to give up? And the rule was, I would go first, and I couldn't give two until Lisa gave one, and she gave one. We just literally just filled up the sheet. The last question was, when, if we go, what will keep us there? When it's very difficult, what will keep us there? So we filled up that. That was Monday night. Friday and I took her out on a date. We're going to decide. It happened to be April Fool's Day, no fooling. And we decided at a restaurant, and we looked at each other. I said, well, what do you think? She said, you go first. And I said, okay, I think God is leading us to leave and go to Seattle to plant this church. She said, I do too. And my wife said, God has given me a love for this city. It's been two visits. So we applied for NAM appointment, went through the whole process. They interviewed us and filled out every online assessment. Flew us to Las Vegas early part of June. We did a face-to-face -face assessment. And then on June 14, we got approval. We told our church on June 26, it was a shock to our church. It was unlooked for. On the one hand, that we were thinking about leaving. 
On the other hand, not unlooked for when they thought it was missions. We're not surprised you go into missions. One guy told me, I couldn't be more surprised, Stuart, if you had told me you were pregnant. <laughs> and he said, no, no, not, not the two. He said, you being pregnant. Said, wow, okay. Uh, but anyway, uh, our church has been very gracious to us. It's given us, month, given us the months of August and September to come to churches like First Baptist Mixville. And God has filled it up. We've been visiting churches. It's been an incredible journey for us, worshiping with you, telling you the story. Um, it's been a great journey for us. I've been looking forward to this trip. What we have discovered, and Tim, you need to hear this, the churches that God is bringing to our path, like First Baptist Florence, Alabama, like Ellisville in Missouri, First Baptist, like First Baptist Lexington, Tennessee, like First Baptist Nixon, what we're hearing, we tell them our story, and they are saying to us, God is doing a work in us. You didn't know it. We didn't know what He was doing in you and Lisa. You didn't know what He was doing with us, and He's bringing us together as partners. We're discovering that church after church after church, and I'm sensing it even here. So, the calling is for us to leave. I will preach my last message at Centerton October 2. Shortly thereafter, we will head to the Northwest. And I'm saying to First Baptist Nixa, we are willing to go. We'll give the rest of our lives. But we must be sent. North American Mission Board will take care of about 25% of our needs for three years. We're asking for churches to consider coming beside us for three years and continue with us perhaps another three years. It's going to be quite a journey. Send your pastor and wife. Send Tim and Ashley to us. Let us host them. Let them come back and tell you what God is doing. Let us come back and tell the stories of what God is doing over the years. And think about a long-term partnership. What I'm asking you essentially is let us into your hearts. And what would God do with First Baptist Church next to becoming an Antioch church? One of the last things that they did when we were in Las Vegas, they said, Stuart, you're going to stand in front of the group and you have three minutes, tell us your vision. And I told them I don't need three minutes. But I can tell you my vision. Our vision that God has given to us is a New Testament church rooted in the downtown of Seattle, Washington. Filled with people whose lives have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. When I say that, I think in my mind of the demoniac of the Gadarenes. You remember that story? Jesus visited this demon-possessed man, can you imagine the terror that he had wreaked upon that city? Shrieking in the cemeteries, children trying to go to sleep at night, terrified. And Jesus commanded the demon out of him and cast the demons into the herd of swine. Down the hill they go. The townspeople hear about it. They lose their livelihood. They come out very upset and angry. And what did they see? When they found Jesus, they found the demoniac sitting clothed and in his right mind. And I'm telling you that is part of the vision God has given to us. When you come to visit us, I don't know how big the church will be, I don't know how long it's going to take, that's not what I see. But I see a church filled with people sitting clothed in their right minds by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For His glory. very last question Lisa and I asked is what will keep us there when it's cold and rainy. We were there six days, and I can attest to you it was cold and rainy. By the way, do you know that Seattle has the uh, largest concentration of coffee shops in America? <laughs> 2.5 coffee shops for every 1,000 residents. And no Southern Baptist church in the downtown. 1,200 coffee shops. No Southern Baptist Church in the downtown. I don't know about your association, 
but the Association of Northwest Arkansas and Benton County alone, we have 70 Southern Baptist churches. Let that sink in. But the, the, the last question we ask is, when it's cold and rainy, what's going to keep us there? And I just want you to know our heart. I'm trying to be transparent. It is only the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. The kingdom is worth it. It is worth every sacrifice. And truly, we are not sacrificing that much. Even David Livingston went to, went to Africa, said, what have any of us really sacrificed ever for the cause of Christ? But the kingdom is worth whatever sacrifice we will give to it. Because the gospel is never stationary. It is always moving onward. Let me pray for you, and your pastor will come and close the service. Father, thank you so much for allowing us to gather today, gather in freedom, openness. We thank you, Father, for the privilege to preach, to tell what you are doing, Lord, we know that this thing of going to a city like Seattle does not mean that suddenly you're going to start working. You are already at work in that city. You are, you are active, making your name great, building your kingdom one precious stone at a time. In the most difficult places in this world, you are advancing the cause of Christ. The kingdom is being built. Lord, help us to lift our eyes from our own circle of influence, our own little part of the world, and realize that you are doing a great thing in this world. You've invited us to join you. Father, for your glory, for your name, we will do this. We pray that you would be glorified in it. I pray these things in Jesus' name.